Hello, and welcome to Pod Space Nine, the last stop for trash in the Alpha Quadrant. This is a rewatch podcast for Star Trek D Space Nine, featuring two veteran viewers and one newbie. My name is Justin, and I'll be your Bay Team Commander. Joining me is my science officer, Anna, with our acting ends in Jude. Jude, Anna, how are you doing? The Santa trucks are back, and I must <laughs> smash them with a hammer. Smash it with a hammer. It's that time of year again for us, not for you. This episode's probably coming out sometime in the spring. Uh, but for us, it is barreling towards the holidays. I fail to comprehend like who thought that nearly 9 p.m. was a good time to be like taking like five fire trucks down all of the roads and like blaring simultaneously, simultaneously, I tell you, sirens and carols. It is like it is like legitimately like sensory hell. That. Yeah, that sounds pretty bad. It, yeah, it seems contraindicated for sure. And I feel like this is this is supposed to be like a thing for children, right? Yeah. For 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 small children who who enjoy the magic of Santa, Jude, who are Jude? notorious, who Jude. are notoriously like well reacting to loud noises. Mm. My my son, for the record, is asleep right now. What time do small children typically go to sleep? Is it is it before or after 9 p.m.? Well, okay. In deference, that depends wildly on the child. For the most part, most parents I know would like their children to be in bed sometime around sunset and aim for that as much as possible. My kid goes to bed around 8 plus or minus 30 minutes these days, but that's a relatively new de- development. For the last few years, it's been like, 7.30 or else. So, but I know, I also know some kids that make their, you know, don't go to bed till like 10 because their parents apparently committed terrible crimes in the past life and deserve it. I was one of those children, but I also refused to wake up in the morning. So. Yeah. Whereas my son's up at five every morning. A little sadist. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm sorry for your, your, your uh, sensory hell. They're leaving the neighborhood now. All will be well soon at some point. (laughs) Or at least quieter. Yes. What about you, Justin? How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I've got I've got friends in town for the holidays that I'm going to meet up with this week. So I'm going to enjoy that. Um, Yeah, no, it's it's good. Oh, I did have a funny thing that I wanted to share. Um, Zathras, edit this out. Anyways, uh, tonight we are, you have a supersized episode. We are, we've got three of these bad boys here. And we've got, and we've got a lot of notes for all of them. Yeah, I I thought it was funny when I was looking over the notes, I was like, were these supposed to be short episodes? Because none of these summaries are short. These are all like B5 length summaries. Yeah, because see, the thing is that two out of the three of these are usually skips for me. So I don't actually like have the scene for scene frame for frame perfect recall of them the way that I do for some other Deep Space Nine episodes. Mm-hmm. So so I had the vague recollection. I was like, eh, those you know, those are skips. Like we probably won't have that much to say about them, but oh boy howdy. Here we go. Yeah, it's like they're they're not Ferengi episodes. They're not they're not they're they're I will make a case that one of them is slightly an O'Brien must suffer episode by proxy yeah um but it's like there's no like 
I don't think there's any, we don't really come back on any of these. So it's like they, they tend to just be yeah. breezed by because the two after these are huge. Yeah. Oh, like boy. one of them, one of them is a space wedgie and two of them are planet of bad vibes. Yeah. <laughs> that is such a good description. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so yeah tonight we are covering episodes 15 16 and 17 of season 2 paradise shadow play and playing god um i think anna has paradise so take us away oh yeah um yeah so this one stories by jim trombetta and james crocker teleplay by jeff king richard manning and hans beimler um boimler something hmm? beimler beimler um, and directed by Corey Allen. It's just, I see that and my brain just autocorrects to Boimler. Yeah. Um, so Cisco and O'Brien are on a road trip c- together. Um, they're setting up an engineering internship for Jake and discussing O'Brien's non-traditional career path when they run across Star Trek's number one roadside attraction, a habitable planet with human life signs on it. They don't get any answer to their hails and discover that their transmission is being blocked by a low-level dunetic field. So they decide to beam over to the surface and say hello in person. Except Rutro, when they arrive, they discover that it's not just transmissions that are being blocked, their tricorders and phasers go dead and they can't hail the shuttle. Before they can investigate further, someone appears behind them, ordering them to stay put and raise their hands. The two officers are led to the settlement, a crashed and now dismantled colony transport led by a woman named Alexis. The colonists have been stranded for 10 years and have long since given up hope of escape from the duonetic field that inhibits all EM activity. Alexis extols the success of the colony. Despite hardships they faced and the deaths of several colonists, they have rediscovered what man is capable of without technology. Not sus at all. O'Brien and Cisco. <laughs> Do you know what the vibes of that are? Like when Lord Farquaad is addressing a bunch of knights in Shrek, he says, many of you will die and it is a sacrifice that I'm willing to make. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that, that's, the, that's the energy. Um, that's the energy. So O'Brien and... Um, O'Brien and Cisco are welcome to stay in the colony as long as they do their fair share of the labor. And, you know, don't don't ruffle any feathers. Uh, as they're guided to their quarters, Elixus comments that the addition of two strong, healthy men will benefit the colony. Definitely Nessus. Cisco discovers that Elixus was a philosopher before being stranded here, authoring a number of books criticizing humanity's reliance on technology. Conveniently, she brought all of her books with her in dead tree format rather than relying on a Kindle. O'Brien and the colony engineer look for parts to use to try to can- contact the runabout, but Elixus has long since thrown away anything useful. We also discovered that one of the colonists, Meg, is dying from the bite of a native insect, easily clear- curable with a med kit, but not with the native flora and fungi. Elixus scolds the officers for their continued efforts to contact the runabout, suggesting they take their uniforms off and do things her way. The next unsettling revelation comes as the colonists open a crate. Free- excuse me, excuse me, I... It's a box. Yeah, yeah. It is the box. Yeah. It is ca- capital T, capital B, the box. Yeah, it's the box, but it's like, it is just straight up a black shipping crate in the middle yes. of a, in a, the middle of a clearing, like under the beating sun. It is just like a shipping crate that is like about like maybe hip high or yeah. so. 
Um, not a lot of space in this thing. So opens up, opens up this box. Um, and out of it comes a dehydrated and heat-stricken colonist who is imprisoned for duh, 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 stealing a candle. Apparently, this is the colony's punishment system, and they all approved and live by it. Cisco is troubled by this, and uh, his mood does not improve as Catherine Sakai. Uh, literally, <laughs> Catherine Sakai. Yeah, like I yeah, can't. Literally, I, Catherine. Can I emphasize this stuff? It is the actress who plays Catherine Sakai. Yes, I did not. I can't believe I did not fucking recognize her <laughs> I, immediately. I like, and I, I was like, is this the same actress as? Yeah. As fucking, I was so confused. Her voice sounds so much like Keiko's that it's yeah. like yeah. Rosalind Chow's that it, it is like, it is a little weird. And I was like, what, what is going on here? Why does this sound so much like Keiko? Why does this sound so familiar? And when you said it was Catherine Sakai, I was like, I had one of those like, whoa, whoa, whoa moments in my head. <laughs> oh my God. Uh. Anyway, uh, Catherine Sakai appears in his room that night to attempt to seduce Cisco, uh, sent by Alexis, of course. When he confronts Alexis, she admits to it readily, but insists that it was just just a suggestion uh, and assigns Cisco to guard duty for the night. The next morning, an exhausted Cisco goes back to work in the fields, and we find out that Meg has died from the insect bite. So that's fun. Alexis uses her death to condemn O'Brien for his continued waste of time trying to contact the runabout, sentencing Cisco to the box as O'Brien's commander. After his first day in the crate, Alexis summons Cisco and offers him food and water, if he'll take off his Starfleet uniform. Cisco ba- goes back in the box. Meanwhile, Dax and Kara had been searching for the runabout after it failed to respond to their hails and was detected, abandoned, and at warp by the Romulans. They find, and with some fancy flying, secure the runabout. They find no signs of a struggle, but determine that the runabout was exposed to intense radiation due to passing very close to a star. It looks like somebody tried to fly it into a sun, but their aim was off and it slingshot it off instead. I'm sorry. Are you seriously going to summarize this section without mentioning that Dax apparently learned how to do th- is is using her bdsm experiences to inform <laughs> this entire process and i'm not fucking making a bit she literally says that she was tied up by a cowboy and that is yeah. wh- that is where she got the idea for this maneuver yep yep I just I want mean, to say I mean, that I this figured, is the sort of thing of you would- that i would have put right in the summary i would not have glossed over that <laughs> <laughs> well, because I knew that you would chime in. Okay, we appreciate that. I, I can't. I can't take all of the. I t- can't take all of the revelations for myself. I had. I had. You know, Catherine Sakai in there. That's fu- that's fair. That's fair. Carry on. So it looks like somebody tried to fly the roundabout into the sun, but their aim was off, and it slingshot it off instead. So Kira and Dax begin to trace its path back to the colony. Back at the colony, O'Brien continues to try to figure out the source of the field, convinced that Elixis is lying about it being naturally occurring. He finally finds a power generator in the woods with the help of a handmade compass, disables it after fighting off Elixis's creepy son, and returns to the colony to free Cisco from the box with his now functional phaser. Elixis admits that the device is her doing. She even helped invent it and that she destroyed their runabout and engineered the colony's crash on this planet. Kira and Dax arrive and O'Brien and Siska prepare to leave with Elixis and her son in tow in custody to face non-box consequences. 
They offer to evacuate the colonists as well, but they refuse to leave their community and may even turn the field generator back on. Uh, the final shot is of two young kids as they stare silently at the box. Okay. <laughs> First, I'm gonna. We, I have a lot to say about this episode, but I'm yes because we did, we just talked about the ending. I have to put this at the top, and I will put a content warning on this. We make a lot of un unflagged jokes about war crimes, so you know you're getting into this. But if you are not okay with me making jokes about the absolute weird incest vibes between the Alexis and her son. Just take jump ahead like three minutes. Yeah, just jump ahead yeah. a couple of minutes. Because if these two aren't fucking, I'm a goddamn it alligator. It is like Yeah. I, part of it is like part of it is like just this evil himbo son. Who is like, like, he isn't really emoting at anything. No. He's just like looking adoringly at her. Yeah. yeah. And the way that she like runs her hand down him all like every time he's near, she puts her hand not like on his shoulder in a, in a like, this is my son way, but like on his bicep in a, you know, hubba hubba way. It's real sketchy. And especially at the end there where they're beaming out and she takes his hand in not in a like, it's going to be okay way, but in a like me and my lover going off to face the consequences of our actions way. Yeah. It's, I'm just saying, this is like the Folgers ad from the nineties levels of (laughs) incest vibes. That's how strong it is. It's got, it's got real like broke both arms energy. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Very, very true. Anyway. Also, wow, that is a deep cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a long time ago on the internet. Yeah. So listeners, if you don't know what that reference is, uh, don't ask me. Yeah, I'm sorry. Find it out yourself. Or just don't. Save yourself the pain and just gloss right past it. Things that this episode does well, though. There's a lot of fun bits in this episode. Yeah. I, I think that like the interplay between O'Brien and Cisco in this episode is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely, like, I, I think it's I, I think it is like it, it is one of those things where it's like even though Cisco is like I mean first of all Cisco is a commissioned officer and mm-hmm. a commander, but like O'Brien is older than him and like you know more experienced. There there is an interesting like. Like yes, O'Brien calls Cisco sir, but it's like they 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 are very like I don't know equal. Yeah, like they're both seasoned men. They have a very a camaraderie that I think also comes from being men of a certain experience. They're both veterans. They're both Federation officers for whatever value of officer that comes in. They're both dads. Yeah. yeah, and I think that brings a lot, especially considering what they're talking about at the beginning. Cisco wants Jake to follow him into Starfleet, and so they're they're kind of bonding over O'Brien's unconventional route into engineering. Which, side note, I love that. Like, yeah, what a what a nice little piece of characterization. Um, that yeah, you know, we've got so many genius characters on these shows, and like O'Brien is legitimately extremely good at what he does. He yeah. is like a top tier engineer. And the fact that he came to it later in life 
Yeah. That like he got into a situation where it was like get good or die and he got good. Yeah. Uh I I love it. I love it. It's so it's so nice to have that like little piece of you know of pe- somebody discovering discovering their niche in adulthood. Yeah. There's nothing about O'Brien I don't like as these episodes go on. He's such a good guy. Yeah. And yeah. you can see also one thing I really like about this is we haven't gotten a ton of like Cisco and O'Brien together, mm-hmm. but you can tell that they've thought about this relationship because there is a very nice, comfortable air to this relationship. And you can see that there's a, res- a mutual respect there in the way that O'Brien is ready to go to bat for Cisco, but Cisco is also very much like, you know, I'm willing to take this responsibility. Like there's a really nice interplay there that feels very earned and very natural, which I really, really like. Yeah. I love the line where Cisco is like enthusing about Jake and he's like, Jake struck me out with a curveball. And O'Brien has this look on his face like, what's a curveball? What is this? What is this? He's, he's talking baseball again. Look, look interested. <laughs> look interested. It's so good. Like apparently soccer is popular in the future, but we know canonically baseball's not. So yeah. O'Brien's just there being like, that's not a form of kayaking I recognize. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because it's like O'Brien seems to enjoy individual sports, Mm -hmm. uh, which I just I find interesting of like I this is one of those things where it's like I would love to like write about like how sports changes in a post scarcity society. Mm -hmm. When you don't have money, how does professional sports change and like how does the way we approach sport change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that is, that is an incredibly nerdy thing for me personally. <laughs> um, I love though, that that's the first, the first two things that, that, that these uh, stranded colonists want to know about is the soccer team, the soccer championship and women's fashion. And that, that seems yeah. extremely <laughs> accurate with human like culture to me. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I know that if I was just, if I was stranded on a different planet for 10 years and I was like, and it was like, oh, hey, it's been 10 years. It's going as, did, like, did, you know, it's like, did the Sharks make, did the Sharks make the Stanley Cup finals? And it's like, yeah. you know, I'm okay with no, I just need to know. Yeah. <laughs> so I could save myself the heartache. I, I love that, like, we got a soccer mention because I don't remember yeah. that coming up a lot in Star Trek, but I mean, there is, what specific mention of soccer in Star Trek, which is uh, Worf accidentally killed a kid in a soccer game as a child. <laughs> <laughs> which is one of the most disgustingly grim things ever. That's yeah. amazing. And it tra- and it traumatized him. And it's like part of the reason that Worf is like he is. That's yeah. amazing. I love it. Oh, Worf. That's terrific. I mean, I can't, soccer... I can't wait until Worf joins the cast on this one. Uh, well, soccer is one of the most exhausting things that one can engage in. So, okay, to get to the meat of this episode, yeah, I mean, do we have to? So, Alexis, I, I I described her in my notes as somebody who, if they were on, if they were alive today, would be on Twitter and they would have a marble statue head as their avatar. Yeah. Yeah. I love one how niche 
of a of of a description that is, but also how absolutely razor sharp accurate that is. Yeah, because the and something that I think is interesting here is that unlike you know say somebody who in maybe a different sort of scenario would say technology has made us like you know the the, the thing that you hear a lot with like sort of people who are like anti-technology is like technology separates us from other human beings that it is you know that's the common i think thing to today that you hear is like it separates people and isolates people but Alexis's idea is that technology has caused mankind to lose touch with a power that it once had. And oh my god, is that fascist like like this is like this might be the most fascist character since the person who thought I'm going to solve a planet's economic problems by giving them Mein Kampf. <laughs> yeah, like it's like it's it's got like real like trad wife energy too. Yeah, it really does. It, it's yeah. Um, I got that. I got that at like the, the like food tastes better when you grow it with your own hands. I I got like a really serious like Handmaid's Tale vibe when she sent uh Catherine Sakai to to Cisco. Yeah, yeah. I and I think that they're like in Star Trek. We do have like instances of people who are like yeah we're doing like a lower tech existence by choice um who are like people who are like we want to just have a farming community and we don't really want to be part of like that hustle and bustle and they're just an agriculture world and like those exist yeah but they still have like a comm tower and like local amenities especially medicine yeah because the idea of like Oh, we're harder people because we don't have penicillin. Yeah, yeah. A, such a such a ridiculously. Well, and then she then she swings out with, "Well, maybe God put me here for this." And it's yeah, like, it is such a left field fucking rhetorical gambit for her to swing at Cisco. That I'm just like, what is in your tea, lady? Holy yeah. shit! The interesting thing is like like i think that they're just to talk just to like talk about it in contrast with the historical thing the word luddite gets tossed around a lot today mm -hmm. um but like the original luddites in the 19th century were a movement of like farm of like farm workers and like textile workers who are opposing who are like opposing and sabotaging factories because, not because they were like they were scared of technology, but because of like the economic ramifications. Yeah, because of the economic ramifications of like textile mills, and the fact and the fact that you know these weren't just textile mills; they were these are also sweatshops. Yes, I guess my whole like this whole thing with Alexis, like I think if she had posted on a forum, she would have found a bunch of people who are willing to do this. But the fact is, is that she was a she's so fucking batshit she's she literally hijacked and intentionally crashed a colony ship to force people into this yeah, yeah that's the part that's real bananas about the whole thing is that she she kidnapped an entire ship full of people and then just gaslit them into thinking that they were that they were stranded there 
to make them into a cult where she is she is establishing herself as like an authoritarian figure. Yeah. Well, I think part of it, Justin, I think if she had posted on a forum like, hey, who wants to do this with me? She would not have ended up as the cult leader. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, it probably would have been a better society, (laughs) but she wouldn't have been the cult leader. We see, like, we see a bunch of these planets in TNG yeah. where it's like, where it's like, oh, we purposefully, like, we purposefully, like, don't have like big cities. We just have like homesteads on a planet. Yeah. Um, and, like we farm and something that does that that is probably like, oh, hey, this is probably very different. The twenty fourth century is that probably farm work is a lot easier. Um, in the twenty fourth century. Yeah, although not on this planet. <laughs> Well, not on this planet, but like I, I assume that the Federation has like you know shit that does not make your like you know doing like simple farm work backbreaking and terrible. Yeah. Um, without the need for like ridiculous commercialized agriculture like we have today. Yeah. Um, like that's that is that's the goal of like Star Trek is mm-hmm. to not have to have commercial agriculture. And like uh, I think, you know, probably probably with like advances in farming tech and stuff like that, it probably would be possible to like, you know, to do subsistence farming and not just and not have it take up your entire like every waking moment. There there was an instance of a community in I believe Southeast Asia. I want to say it was Cambodia, but like missionary like it's like an anecdote of like missionaries share technologies and and methods that are like hey this will produce this will make your crop yield twice as uh like this will like double your crop yield and when they came back like a couple of years later it's like you're still making the same amount of food but they're like yes we are making we we're making with a lot less work involved yeah <laughs> yeah Instead, instead of using the same effort to get twice the food, they're using half the effort to get th- to make the same amount of food, yeah. which yes. is it makes a lot more sense. Yes, and this is one of those things where Protestantism, specifically the <laughs> the, the brand of Protestantism that colonized America, is so fucking insane. Yeah, it's toxic is is even the word. Yes. Other things about this episode that are great is uh the. And everything about Dax and Kira in their rescue oh, yeah. mission. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're, they're at full besties, but I love it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dax is super. Is, I, I, I just have Dax is so horny, lol, in my notes. <laughs> um, You're not wrong, though. No. Well, I no, I'm not. She literally is sitting there while they're trying to, like, catch this shuttle telling Kira an anecdote about how she was lassoed and tied up by a cowboy. And Kira's like, can we do this now? Can, or can we get, can we track your beam this thing? It's and, such and, a and bizarre And Dax is like, scene. absolutely. I'll use a rope on you, Kira. It's, it is such a scene. My God. I love, I love it. It's, it's wild. Yeah. As as another like, I just had a thought too with like what that what this colony has and doesn't have. Um, notably, I'm pretty sure it doesn't have birth control. Yeah, um, like which adds kids. another like layer to Alexis sending Catherine Sakai to go and fuck Cisco. Yeah, right. Like the actual character's name is Cassandra. Just yeah, 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 yeah. yeah but who, who remembers that shit? 
something that I do really enjoy in this episode is just Avery Brooks in general, like yeah. being a in this case, a like standout person speaking against Alexis and like saying, No, this is actually insane. Um, yeah. But like it's it, we we we'll get more of them as as things go along, but like Cisco getting to be the the moral core of uh, of an episode is always good. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Even when he fails being a moral center, uh, we will get to that. <laughs> that surprise joke that will come in handy later. <laughs> also, I w- I just want to point out that it is very hard, in fact, to plunge something into a sun. Yeah, yeah, that was because, a cool like, point. I like that. Yeah, because because gravity makes it so that it wants to put stuff into orbit around the thing. Yeah, and you actually basically have to put it in a force to like continually beat the like centrifugal gravity yeah one of the technical term for it but it's like you have to you have to force your way through the gravity and it's like it's why we can't like actually send stuff very close to the sun right now yeah i I like that elixis first of all how did she get up there to redirect yeah, that's the a great. Like, I mean, who knows? Maybe she, maybe like you know, there was some crazy shit going on. While everybody there, like, was asleep, she turned off the field and beamed up there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, um, yeah. I, I, I don't worry about it. Yeah, but I, yeah. I like that she blew it, and yes, that that was how they found it. I must say, this is one of those episodes that like there's a certain category of episodes where I'm like, this entire plot would be fixed if somebody sent a text message. Um, uh-huh. this is one of those, um, like I'm, I'm shaking my head so hard at Cisco and O'Brien just like fucking beaming down to this planet with zero plan for how to get back because they're like, oh, our comms are blocked in one direction. Yeah. Why? Uh, and it's like, how, maybe you fucking it'd be good be- <laughs> Why would you beam down someplace where you're, where you can't? You can't, like, get communications in. Why would you think you could get them out to beam yourself out, you fucking like, yuckles? Can you imagine, like, the like after, after like, after Jadzia has gotten Cisco some Gatorade and, like, uh, like seated him with a medical kit, can you imagine how insufferable she would be on the oh, way back? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because, like, man, you know, if if they just like texted like you know texted her to be like hey we're being down to a planet there might be comms issues like here's where we parked the car right and that's like, one thing that i especially as someone that you work in technology for any amount of time it becomes very apparent to you a like how many plot holes a lot of these space shows have and b how, how, like you said, not just by a text message, how easily these plots could be defeated, but by like an internet connection. Because there's no yeah. way that in a future where these ships have with like any way to communicate to each other, that these shuttles are not in constant network con- connect connectivity, transmitting location. There's no way, there's no way that in a Starfleet that operates the way with realistic technology that they are not constantly transmitting, uh, what do you call it? Um, locate locational data for every badge in Starfleet. Yeah. Like there's no way that it doesn't, doesn't do that. So like the minute they beam down and vanish, the shuttle's like, "Mm, fuck. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's a factor of like, you know, 
being written a hot minute ago, right? Like, yeah. you know, where, yeah. you know, this is a, this is more of the time where like, you know, you could call and leave a voice message, but like, you know, that, you know, it might make more sense to just beam down there and see what happened. Right. Like, yeah. And not no, send an email. It's a funny thing. It's a friend of mine calls it the William Gibson effect because William Gibson famously uh, has said he couldn't have read Neuromancer if he'd ever actually used a computer. Uh, but he wrote, Neuro, uh, for those of you that are not familiar, Neuromancer is considered the foundational work of cyberpunk. Uh, and it was written on a typewriter by a man who had almost no understanding of how computers or the internet worked, uh, which is fucking hilarious. What he knew about was drugs and like corporate dystopia. And then he just kind of made the rest up. But it's, it's very funny that like, the like all the technology stuff you know you try and apply that to this this book and it doesn't work and he's famously said that and that's very true of a lot of science fiction narratives that if you try and apply like the constantly moving cutting edge of technology to a lot of yeah. sci-fi narratives it falls apart yeah okay um I think because I think we, we need to move more, on out of time yeah, we've reasons. Got two more episodes, uh, yeah. Overall, I think the most fascist character since the person who literally introduced Nazis to a planet. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Or at least the most fascist fascist person from the Federation. This this episode has aged like extremely disturbing wine. Yes. All right, on to the next one, Jude. You've got shadow play. Take yep. us away, boy. Do I. Uh, episode 16 of season two, Shadowplay, was written by Robert Hewitt Wolf, which is a pretty good name. Sounds yes. like a Canadian mm -hmm. superhero. So Robert Hewitt Wolf was uh, is, is a bear. Like this is, the, I think this is maybe the first time we see his name. Like I feel like we've seen it maybe once or twice before, but he has uh, been a consistent writer in Hollywood for the last 30 years. He did a lot of Elementary. Fucking I think he was one of the showrunners. Fucking champ. All right. Well, that makes sense then. Um, and directed by Robert Shearer, who we have heard before. Uh, the episode opens as Dax finishes relaying a juicy bit of tea to Odo while on a science survey on the other side of the wormhole. They are nominally there to investigate the usual Star Trek mumbo-jumbo while Odo is along for wet but not fascist reasons. Odo is absolutely bumfuzzled by the whole notion of gossip, and we're equally bumfuzzled how this fucking conversation got started until it turns out that Dax is trying to talk to Odo about what she suspects is a female admirer. And Odo accidentally reveals that he's a virgin, much to his chagrin. Not, not, not the virgin part. I'd like to clarify. He's fine with being a virgin. He's just, his chagrin is that Dax caring. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good clarification. He thinks the whole concept of like, we can get into this later. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into it later. Uh, they detect evidence of the Babletonium particles. I refuse to remember what they're actually called, uh, which are the cause of the mumble jumbiest field that brought them there, which, of course, as it so often does, interferes with their sensors, uh, which apparently have all the reliability of a TV with rabbit ears. Everything interferes with sensors in Star Trek. What are, is it just tinfoils jammed into the top of a tricorder? Is this how sensors work? <laughs> or is it, uh, well, that might be how... Well, that might be how the sensors work, especially, right? Because there's the sensors and there's the sensors. I refuse to acknowledge a difference. Um, 
Anyway, they beam down to this incredibly prototypical Star Trek village set. And in the middle of the square, they find a big robo donut and are discovered by a local, a, a local cop with a space gap. Dax and Odo are taken into custody, but the community's protector, who, after a brief standoff that's ended by a demonstration of the runabout's transporter, admits that he's had 22 people go missing and he's stumped, which immediately provokes Odo's curiosity. And Odo goes into full-on uh, cop from out of town wants to help solve the case mode. Odo and Dax throw themselves into the investigation with Dax looking for transporter signals and Odo interviewing the child who saw, was the last person to see the woman who disappeared most recently. Odo doesn't get anywhere productive until the next morning when he tracks down the girl at play with her friends and shares some backstory with her and discovers that no one ever leaves the valley. He confronts the father of the woman, the girl's grandfather, who is one of the founders of the colony and gets further stonewalled about leaving the valley. So they go exploring with the girl to the very edge of the valley. As they go, she tells him folk tales about changelings that she's heard. They discover that beyond the boundary of the village, things disappear like a busted hologram. Dax demonstrates the problem to the protector back in the village with his cloak by tinkering with the donut in the middle of the village. It turns out that the entire village and everything and everyone in it is a hologram and that the reactor that generates it is failing. They demonstrate the problem to the villagers and finally convince them to allow Dax and Odo to shut it down to repair it. When they do so, they, everyone vanishes, except for the shitty old grandpa who founded the village. He says that he fled his homeworld when the Dominion took over. He decides, yeah, fuck it. I guess I'm ready to go home and shut it down. Much to Dax and Odo's disgust, what the fuck is this random, like, I've spent 30 years with these people, but they're not really people, so fuck it, turn them off nonsense? They browbeat him deservedly for a bit and then repair the projector because it's fine. These guys are from the future. They manage it, no problem. Fixed, the village reappears. The missing villagers returned. And they bid everyone farewell. And our B is for ball plot. And ball Odo's has multiple meetings here. <laughs> yes, it does. Boy, howdy, do I leverage that. In Odo's absence, Cork is reminded forcefully by Kira that she's not going to let any bullshit happen on her watch. Specifically, nothing of the cousin fled the station after he robbed a Cardassian museum and tried to fence it through DS9 variety. She has, meanwhile, enlisted the entirely enthusiastic Bashir to spy on Quark when her fuck buddy Vedic Baral shows up, who is in nominally on station for some religious stuff he got invited to. He, but he's really there for a booty call. Uh, he makes that very clear when he shows up. They briefly flirt slash argue about his speech before he talks her into a hollow suite, which we have canonically established are for fucking, um, for some spring ball. Which is, as euphemisms go, not particularly... It's a little gross sounding, but whatever. After Kira injures him with her enthusiastic spring balling, she takes him home to feed him, and they swap awkward internment camp backstories uh, before they start making out over dirty dishes, during which Burrell accidentally blue spring balls himself by mentioning the priest who invited him up to... to uh, 
to speak is in debt to Quark. <laughs> <laughs> you, you deserve this. I'm, I'm flipping I'm so, Jude off because he deserves it for I'm, that one. <laughs> I'm really proud of myself. Kira, Kira ditches him and uh, strolls into Quark's later, smug as a cat with a mouthful of Ferengi canary, to tell him that she's caught his cousin trying to sneak back into the station with the stolen Cardassian artifacts. She thanks him for inviting Beryl up as he's been diverting, but not to, as Quark mentions bitterly, diverting enough. And finally, I'm skipping the C plot, which doesn't exist because D is better because D is for dad plot. Cisco, meanwhile, is letting a distressed Jake know it's time to get a job, which has to be a fucking hilarious surprise for a kid who was raised in a post-scarcity utopia, TM. Jake, for a hot second, thinks he can work at Quark's. I don't know what possessed him to think that his dad would be okay with that, but whatever. <laughs> uh, but Cisco wants to help set, wants to set him up with uh, helping O'Brien, as was mentioned in the last episode, to help with his Starfleet application. There is a long, awkward pause you could fly the entire Enterprise through, while Jake very audibly does not say what he thinks about that. Then he agrees to Cisco's delight. On Jake's first day on the job, Cisco can barely contain his pleasure at seeing him in ops and gives him a comm badge. But it's not really going great. Uh, Jake struggles to identify isolinear chips. This does not seem like a complicated task, but... But hey, at least Starfleet labels their, their weird data storage. Yes, yep. they do. They are, they are labeled, and this is what he's explaining. I feel like he should be able to memorize that the purple labels mean this and the white labels mean that. But you know what? Not judging, just whom's among labels. us has not whom's among us has never like faced a you know wall of electronics and been like, so what are the difference between all these resistors yeah. again? What are the what are the, what is the red wire versus the white wires again? Is it the yellow this, wire this the one, cat five and the 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 orange one the cat six or is it the other way around? So I get that. And this one has a little white dot on it. Is that like a printing error or is that supposed to be there? Yeah. They look the same otherwise. Whom's among us has not been in this situation. Right. As Jake struggles to identify isolinear chips, he expresses frustration to O'Brien when he talk when he too talks to about Jake going into Starfleet. O'Brien shares that his father wanted him to be a cellist and gives Jake some pretty solid dad advice himself. In the Cisco quarters, Jake gets home from work and Cisco's up enough to tell his dad that he doesn't want to join Starfleet. And because he's the best, Commander Sisko is a champ about it. He just wants Jake to be happy and says so. And says something to the effect of like, I just want you to find what is what you'll be happy doing and will give you joy and do it. Um, Fucking the, the exact line is, there is only one thing I want from you. Find something you love and do it the best you can. Which just which, heart eyes. Which Jake I'm just like, oh. is so lucky. Sisko is the best. Best dad. I was yeah. so ready for that scene to be like the dad wants kid to follow in his footsteps and they disagree about it. And instead, yeah. Cisco immediately turns and is just like, buddy, just be your best self. Yeah. I love you yeah. unconditionally. And I I got a little emotional. I'm not going to lie. It's that really, hit me. It's really good. That hit yeah. me hard, dudes. It was so good. I... Cisco is such an such a good dad. And whether you are someone with a good dad, without a good dad, 
or who is a dad trying to go one way or the other, that hits hard. And I just love it. I God, I just love Cisco when he dads up. It's so yeah. good. And that's the episode. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I love about this is like, like in the in like at the start of the episode when when Cisco's like, this will look great in your application to Starfleet Academy. And the way Avery Brooks's eyes light up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just <laughs> like so good. Yeah. Um, but like what's even better is the end of this episode where where he like goes mm-hmm. and it's like I think it's and I think it is really cool because I Jake's plot about not going into Starfleet and what he eventually ends up doing, like one one of the better plot lines on like for like a character through line of Star Trek, mm-hmm. but I, I think it is one of the better ones we see throughout the franchise as a whole. Because yeah, I'm really <laughs> pumped for it, especially in contrast to Wesley too. Um, yes, that like Jake is. You know, we're at the start of him forging his own path um, that isn't just like lockstep being the Starfleet wonder child. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, great he's establishing really early here that he's going to go a different direction. And I'm, I, I really am looking forward to seeing what they do with that um, narratively. Um, but it's great. It's so... It's just really handled so well. And it, it really... And and it makes sense for the character, too, in terms of what we've seen on screen up to this point, like that, you know, you don't like with what we've seen of Jake up until this point, like this is not a kid who you look at and are like, yes, that that child wants to become a Starfleet officer TM, right? Like he's he's like. He's not a nerd. He's not a military dork. Yeah, he's he's like he's you know, loitering with the Ferengi and, like, throwing peas at people. In a series where the primary protagonists are all members of Starfleet, like, signing in the spotlight, especially on, a, on like, the the son of the station commander, like, who does not want to be in Starfleet and just wants to be, like, normal, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what he wants to do, is mm-hmm. very delightful. I love it. Yeah. yeah. No, agreed. Totally. There will be a plot about somebody trying to join Starfleet, and that and that is even more endearing, I think. Yes. Uh, but we'll get there eventually. Yes, um, I, I cannot wait for that. Yeah. The main plot of this episode is fine. I actually, like, the, the part of it that I really like the most is, Odo, like, Odo getting to stretch his character legs a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say, I think this is the first time I've seen an episode of Odo where I just genuinely like Odo. Yeah. He's not being... It's a great Odo episode. ...any kind of fascist. He's just he's just being wet. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's just being, like, a wet, lonely boy, which I... Mm-hmm. Like, that is, like, you know, they're, they're, like, noir Odo is top Odo, but wet, lonely Odo is, like, a lot of fun as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I take that back. the 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 episode where he was getting hit on nonstop by Loxwana was that's the best. S-tier. That's yeah. the best Odo. That's yeah. best yeah. Odo. But this was second best. Yeah, and he's he's so good with the little kid and like, you know, I so many really good scenes. Like the scene like where she's like telling him all this 
changeling stories, which is interesting, and we should put a pin for that for later. Should we get more changeling? I so love- Jude, just remember this. Just just remember that. Remember some of the things from this episode later. Just yeah, no, they they clearly. One of my notes is that from this episode is that they clearly were like, it feels like this episode where previous mentions of the Dominion and like Odo wet people back backstory lore. They maybe didn't have a lot of ideas where they were going. This one very much feels like they are they have some kind of an idea what they're going to do and they're starting to sort of mention stuff cuz they mention the dominion they ta- they use the word changeling like a yeah. much more much more purposefully they're sort of seeding some stuff here it feels like so it definitely feels like they're doing more here um i loved I- his interaction with the girl where she's like can you turn into a, a loaf of bread? And he's like, I'm not a dumbass though. I wouldn't do that. Cause then you'll eat me. Yeah. Like, and she's like, fine. You got me. It's, it's very funny. It's a great, it's a great little scene. And I love, I love that. Like, I love Odo interacting with the kid in such a like carefree, natural fashion that he's not like, he's not being like neurotic and, like awkward the way that Odo so often is. Yeah. It makes sense that Odo is more comfortable around children because there's a lot like children are not potential criminals. <laughs> well, I a that only shows that you have not hung out with a lot of 6-year-olds. Uh and B, um I think it's my guess would be it's because children have a much more like how do I want to phrase this? For someone that struggles with the social dynamics, children, the social dynamics of children are much more feral and thus a lot simpler to navigate for someone who looks at society in terms of like crime and things like that. Like it's much more more straightforward in that in that regard. And and we always have to remember that Odo is a lot more developmentally young than he looks. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. not a He's not an old, an, an older dude the way he looks. I, I love that in this episode we we find out that um, we Kira gets laid and we find out that Odo is a virgin. Yes, which was very <laughs> funny. Uh, we'll, we're going to talk about the whole all the Kira stuff because that was fucking hilarious. Oh yeah, but I also like that the actress who played the precocious child in this episode also mm-hmm. played a precocious child on TNG. Love, and, yeah, man, that's scam. And I immediately yeah. recognized yeah. her. I was like, "Have I seen this episode? Have I seen this?" And I was like, "No, but she looks like I don't remember anything about this episode except for this girl." So I looked her up, and sure enough, she's in an episode of TNG where she plays a similar, not a similar character. I wonder if they were. I wonder if they were filmed at basically the same time. Uh, let's Hold find on, out. Let me, let me pull this up. Because, like, that would be pretty funny of, like, hey, you're on set for this. Can you can you just, like, you know, jump one room over? Here's your here's your second script. So she did. She did that in 90, February of 94. And she did TNG in 92, two years earlier. OK. She was in the imaginary friend episode. Uh, OK. OK. Yeah. That's a cute episode. Uh, but, yeah, it's. I knew I recognized her recognized her immediately. So I was very confused for portions of this episode. Um, 
I don't have a whole lot to say about the A plot of this episode either, other than like that old man can get fucked. His whole like, eh, fuck him, turn him off. I was literally astounded and I was so happy when Odo and Dags both turn around and are just like, excuse you, you wrinkled old shit. I find it very cool that like, I I don't think this is really established about Odo's character so far, but like the, the sort of vehemence with which Odo like campaigns for those for the holograms yeah. is delightful Odo specifically yeah because it's because in this episode great. and the next it is the yeah it is about atypical life forms well yeah and it yeah. makes total sense that Odo as someone who has been on the other side of the shoe so to speak mm-hmm. as something that was not immediately recognized as alive or sentient in a way that the the biological or the two-leggeds understood, he has a a very personal empathy for for life in whatever form it takes, whether it's a hologram or a a you know an ant or whatever it is. Yeah. I resent them making me like Odo more, but I really <laughs> am liking Odo a lot more. Yeah. I think this is around the point when they figure out that like Odo having like weird mysteries and like being allowed to be the outsider in a fun way is also good mm-hmm. and so yeah that leads to a lot yeah. of fun like the like this episode and the like little moments he has in the next one yeah yeah we're enough episodes in that we're really starting to see the actors have like yeah eh, you know you know when you're like watching a show and it hits that point where like the writing itself might be variable from episode to episode, but the actors have it yeah. nailed. Like Renee is a great actor and Yeah. Like, like we've hit it we've hit that point where like even if the writing is inconsistent, the acting is consistent. Yeah. yeah. We get to see him stretch we get to see him stretch a little bit. Yeah. 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 And like it's it's nice and like and Dax too. Like you know, we're seeing we're seeing Dax go from, you know, more horny Dax. the Dax of season one to like horny Dax. And like, you know, the like, you know, that, you know, partly there's like acting and writing reasons for that. But like also it has the the feeling that like at this point, Dax and Jadzia are like integrated into a single being. Yeah. Who is comfortable in their own skin. Talking about cowboys and trying yeah. to hook up the uh the, the the wet puddle man that works security. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. I love the look on her face when she's like uh you know, I I uh, noticed that so and so's been hanging out in security a lot and Odo is horrified at her implication. <laughs> he could not be more dismayed at the suggestion that someone wants to date him. <laughs> Just flabbergasted. I'd actually like to put a pin in something for us to discuss later after we get more Odo characterization stuff. Um, At some point, I want to talk about Odo with respect to like ace arrow spec sort of coding. But now is not the time. Yeah, I'm interested in that conversation because I am aware I'm I live on the Internet in 2023. I know what these things are and I know people who use these labels, but I am not, I will make no claims to be familiar enough to speak on the subject. So I think it would, I think, I think it would be a great episode to have someone on that can speak more personally about it. Um, that can speak 
or to have an episode focused on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there there will be there are there are episodes that where Odo's Odo's romantic and sexual life is much more of a focus of the episode, mm-hmm. shall we say? And I think I, that's the point where I would like to discuss it. But I think I just wanted to flag it as something to think about and to like continue thinking about as we watch through this. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, but I just but it's to, not time to talk about it yet. Yeah, I just wanted to flag that I, I recognize that that's something I personally don't feel qualified to speak to. And um, I would love to have a more informed conversation about that at some point, because I am interested to see if the way that Dax unintentionally maps to the trans experience if Odo maps similarly. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Excellent. All right, let's talk about, one. let's talk, hold on. We got to talk about Kira fucking. Oh yeah. We can, um. take, we can take two minutes to talk about uh, Kira getting her slam ball on. Is that what it is? Slam spring ball? ball. Spring ball. Spring, getting, springing on, springing on the those balls. The slam ball was a real sport. Okay. I'm sorry. Sorry. Springing on those balls. Um, spring ball does come back too by the way yes. well this is an incredibly horny show of course it does um <laughs> there are spring ball championships by the way yes. on Bajor. make it that what you will no comment uh yes first of all that is an incredibly horny sport name uh and i do think it's very funny that they use the hollow suite for that but i do think it's absolutely hilarious Quark decides that the way he's going to get this crime done is to get Kira laid. <laughs> what do you even say to that? It's it's such a Quark maneuver. Like yeah. Kira's all up my ass. I gotta get. I gotta. I gotta get her distracted. Let's bring. Let's get her. Let's get her a booty call. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> such a bananas plot line. It's great. I really like Vedic Baral. I can't imagine. That there are good things in his future. Kira is the closest thing to O'Brien in terms of suffering that I can tell. <laughs> like, Kira suffers too. She has an awful backstory. And so far, her, her, <laughs> she's like, oh, for a bunch when it comes to like good things happening to her. So I have to imagine that Vedic Baral is gonna, is gonna have some grim shit happen to him. But in the meantime, I'm glad she's getting some pipe laid. That's I'm well, or whatever the fucking Bajorans have. God knows we I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, human analog there. Yeah. Um, Hold on. Can I have a sidebar real fast here? (laughs) Sure. You sure. You can have 45 seconds. (laughs) The episode of TNG where they claim that like all sentient life in the galaxy is because one race of aliens seeded life everywhere and that's why all life in the galaxy is humanoid humanoid life all humanoid life is is kind of vaguely the same did they like is that actually canon is that like alpha canon (laughs) let's 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 put it they've never referenced it again okay yeah it's it's technically in the alpha canon but everybody hates it but everybody hates it okay so you could use it to explain why all the humanoid races can fucking crossbreed, but nobody, people would rather just not look, not think too hard about it. Yeah. 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 All right. That is accurate. Yeah. Cool. Moving on. All right. So our last episode tonight is 
uh, season two, episode 17, Playing God, story by Tim, Jim Trombetta, teleplay by Jim Trombetta and Michael Piller, directed by David Livingston. Our episode starts with a new Trill, who is named Arjun. He is an initiate for the testing process to become joined. Jadzia is his field docent, who is going to observe him as she does a little bit of field training with him. Dax, the symbiont, has a bit of a bad reputation across uh, its past seven hosts, rejecting 57 candidates in 200 years. Which is like a little less, a little more than one, one every four years, which is pretty nasty. Yeah. There are 5,000 candidates every year and only about 300 symbionts to be assigned. So this is not great odds. Arden's first meeting da- uh, meeting with Dax is finding her ripping off Quark at a game of Tonga, which sort of sets things off on a funny note. I, morning, I think it's also funny that he gets there because he runs into Bashir on the transport. And Bashir is so smug about this. He's just like, here you go. Here's, here's Dax. Uh, the next morning, Archie gets to meet one of Dax's hookups who, call me. Um, and we feel, <laughs> and he starts to feel like he's getting off on the wrong foot. Meanwhile, O'Brien and Kira are going hunting after Cardassian voles, complete with phasers. <laughs> uh, Cisco has ordered them for the time to be set to stun. Um, it is not going well. Yeah, <laughs> Jadzia takes Arjun through the wormhole on a runabout trip, and Jadzia promises to take it easy on Arjun, that she's not like the other Dax hosts. She reveals that after field training with Curzon, he'd recommended her training be terminated. As they talk, the uh, ship is rocked by a subspace pocket, which turns out to leave some sort of residue, a subspace seaweed, on one of the nacelles. Quark badgers the senior staff about finding a solution to their vol problem, and O'Brien has been making a sonic <laughs> weapon to fight them. Uh, DS9 has to tow in the runabout Mekong as they are, and as they are setting up containment for the residue, uh, Jadzia takes Arjun to dinner, where Arjun reveals where he, he's got daddy issues and has had sort of an obsession with becoming joined. In fact, Arjun doesn't even know what to, what he wants to do after he's joined. There is also a scene here where, like, uh, this Klingon is doing a, like, Lady of the Tramp, this is the night, with, like, a, an accordion-like thing serenading the restaurant. Yeah, dumb. That Klingon chef, call me. Uh, <laughs> I just want to say, uh, the scene where Miles is talking about building the sonic weapon. I don't know why this is where my head went, but I imagine Gizmo from the movie, from the film Gremlins in the second one, where he's like going Rambo mode, where he ties on the, the Rambo headband and is making weapons out of like, like, uh, what do you call them? Paper clips and pencils and like all the junk he finds in the office and in the toy store. That no, is that's the, the mental. That's the vibe. That's the <laughs> mental picture I had for what Miles sitting in his in his uh in his office or his study in his quarters, like assembling a sonic weapon, bare chested, <laughs> fuming at these voles. So Miles, I'd also, I'd also like to point out that the best part of that scene is that Cork is there for Miles testing the sonic weapon. Yeah. <laughs> And Armin Shimmerman man- manages to start keening and then just keel over sideways and just fall out of frame. 
Um, While screaming. It's amazing. Miles. <laughs> it's one of my top 10 moments. O'Brien calls a Cardassian officer for help with the Vols, who is very unhelpful and suggests that, uh, you know, well, if the Federation can't <laughs> handle Vols, they can evacuate the station and surrender Bajor. <laughs> um, he also reminds O'Brien that the Vols mating season is in six weeks. <laughs> Juliet sends Miles a flute to tease him, while Dax expresses doubt to Cisco about Arjun. She says that uh, it is not her job to confront Arjun and play the bad cop with him, just to show what joint is being like. Cisco's like, hey, you should talk to this boy. But Jadzia doesn't want to traumatize him like Curzon did to her. Um, things start to get a lot of a little out of hand when the voles eat through the containment of the subspace seaweed. Um, and it starts to glow and grow. Uh, Cisco, being very bad, tells the crew to set phasers to kill. <laughs> as Dax and Arjun work, she presses him as he tries to make up for his indecision last night. Arjun just snaps and rages at her, saying that she doesn't measure up to the other Dax hosts before storming out. When the staff meets later that day, Jadzia reveals that this residue is in fact a growing proto-universe. She thinks the universe will expand until it consumes the station, or system, or worse. They contain it, but it would lead to the destruction of the proto-universe. Arjun goes to drink in Quirks, and Quirk tells him to seize his opportunities. Um, as the crew pr prepares to collapse the proto-universe, Dax finds that there are signs of life in the universe. Uh, Cisco decides to not contain the universe because he doesn't want to destroy it, and the universe expands, which breaches the hole in that section. Kara suggests that they contain the field and destroy it to save everything, and Odo of all people suggests that that would be murder. And uh, Kira's like, why? This would be like stepping on ants. And Odo's like, I do not step on ants. I love you, Odo. Yeah, no, this is, this is the good Odo. The, the good Odo uh, shapeshifted into his uniform today. Um, they have five hours until the next expansion, which would take out a significant part of the station. Cisco reads in a personal log that he feels like he would be no better than the Borg if they destroyed this universe. Cisco goes to talk to Jake, who reveals that he has been seeing a Dapo girl, Marta, who Jake has been tutoring. Jake asks if he can bring Marta dinner, and Cisco like reluctantly agrees. Jadzia goes down to talk to Arjun, talking about how Curzon made her life miserable and in fact just like fucking tormented her while she was uh, field training. And she had to reply, reapply with a renewed passion, eventually ending up with the Dax symbiote as probably a dark joke of Curzon's. Mm -hmm. She tells Arjun that he can't do this just for other people's expectations, but he has to do it for himself. Uh, Cisco tells Dax that they'll take the proto-universe back to where they found it, and Dax takes Arjun to be their pilot through the wormhole. Their trip through the wormhole is shaky, and they have to stop to keep the containment field intact. Arjun takes the wheel, and he uh, it maneuvers the runabout through the wormhole on thrusters alone. They're barely able to scrape through and drop the proto-universe off. Arjun apologizes to Dax once they get back to the station, and she encourages him to keep at it, and that she might give him his re her recommendation eventually. As Arjun leaves, she tells herself, I'm not Curzon. This is a good episode. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll, every part of it is great, honestly. Yeah. The, like, I love Terry Farrell, like, trying to, like, like, being the person who's, like, I do not want to commit the, like, the trill version of generational tr trauma on this person. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I just, I don't want to pass that down to another initiate. Uh, yeah. Which yeah. I find really interesting. and. 
but but also like but also this kid like needs to learn some stuff yes. right like yeah he's for sure know. not there for the right reasons when he shows up the version of dax that is that we're beginning to see is very very fun yes um, yeah the version of dax yep. we're getting that is basically like hard drinking hard partying brilliant and relentlessly horny is so fucking good and not at all what you expected from the version of Dax that meditates to sublimate sexual desire uh, <laughs> and eats boring food from the first couple of episodes. And I really like that this is the version of Dax that they've dialed into that yeah. after seven hosts, she's just like, fuck it. Hedonism. Yeah. This is like <laughs> right. the core Dax that I like. Yeah. Like or the, the core Jadzia that I know. Um, yeah, which I think is it's a lot like one of the best characters in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah, she's been she's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we we are at like full peak Jadzia Dax, like in this episode, she's fully come into her own. She's there with her like you know Tongo and her hookup and yeah. her wrestling and her Ferengi black hole for breakfast. <laughs> And God, that's so, like, which what the hell is in that thing? I, I right? do not um, want to know. And <laughs> nothing is like, ever good in a black drink. Like, like right. that's, that only uh, spells trouble. Fun fact: there is. If you did, you ever go to the the Star Trek bar in Vegas when it was, was still I, a thing? I have not. So there were two drinks that came in a giant glass sphere. Oh. <laughs> One was called a warp core breach and the other was called the Ferengi black hole that at least oh when I was gosh. there. Um, Amazing. I never had the, the Ferengi black hole because it had, I don't remember what it had in it, but the warp core breach was basically, I don't know, like I want to say like 60 ounces of rum and fruit juice with a lot of dry ice and like 12 straws. Dang. Okay, so the, I I just googled it. There are there are like three recipes: one non-alcoholic, which is espresso, drip so, uh, soy milk, and chocolate syrup. Which okay, that I would I would drink that. Mm-hmm. Or the other one, which is uh, I guess it'd be one shot Kahlua, two shots vodka, dash of lemon juice, twist of lemon peel. Oh, I would. Yeah, no, I I I would drink that. That's absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. But it's like we're 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 to the like peak Dax where you know she's she's got all that fun stuff but she's also like she's also got wisdom to her and she's also got this like level of like a bit of insecurity, right? Where she's there being like, you know, she she does want to do she does want to be a good mentor and do right by this kid. Um and she's like trying to figure out how to do that. It's great. I love her. The Triller is such an interesting character to have in the show because they do have Dax is incredibly old and brings this mm-hmm. level of wisdom to the character. But Jadzia is like, what, 24? Yep. And Jadzia does. Or like 28 or, or something. something like that. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. Does not have that. And the way that they they're balancing those those character traits in in this character is is really i'm glad that they na- that they're getting better at nailing that balance because it's really interesting i 
I think that something that is also it's sort of brought up here, uh, and it's like I think this is really the first inklings we get of it is how f- I a little bit earlier in the season, but like just how traumatic and like intense and exhaustive the application process is to be joined. Yeah, and the like fucked up relationship between the Trill and the symbionts. It's like you have an entire planet full of burned out gifted children. Yeah. Like <laughs> like you have an entire cultural cachet around being the best the best gifted child and you know. Yeah. The And it's like the and the symbionts as like you know, and even for those like, you know, perfect gifted children like the symbiont still comes first and it's like this weird like transactional aspect to it like it's extremely fucked up yeah there's definitely i don't want to call it gross but there's definitely a a very weird and vaguely uncomfortable power structure there with yeah between the hosts and the trill that i have no idea if that's ever investigated in Star Trek, but I find it very interesting. I, I've I've mentioned I mentioned this book like half a dozen times, but Alex White's Revenant, um, which I I will make I I think I will assign a reading after when it happens in canon, which I think is early season four, but is like is entirely about what happens to all these dropouts. Incredible, <laughs> and how Trill society tries to help them, um, and doesn't always work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like it, it's like this isn't really spoilers for the book but like apparently there's an entire like division of the symbiosis commission that is about helping like people who wash out especially in the later parts of the process like find things to do and like get them back into society so they don't end yeah. up like that absolute nutter butter that yeah attacked dax in the first season yeah. yeah i can't i can't wait until you see the next nutter butter Oh, do we have more Trill Nutter Butters? Um, hold on. I, I, I can't, I can't, that's the, that's the most teaser I can oh, give you. Oh, no, that Nutter Butter. Uh-huh. Uh, the is, Piano is the Boy. Headphones? Piano Boy. Yes, Piano Boy. Okay, yeah, I was like, I wanted to make sure we got the right person. No, we'll meet him, oh, like, yeah. we'll meet him like early season three. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait. That's going to be great. <laughs> that uh, is a very threatening great. Um... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just okay to change speeds a little bit. You're in love with a Dabo girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I love that relationship too. It's like it's so cute. Like, yeah, as far as I can like, it seems like very cute and like age appropriate every time like you know it's described, etc. And like, you know, I love that it's like Jake making a home for himself on the station and like and there's also the aspect where it's like forcing, like every time it forces Cisco to confront his like mental stereotype of what a Dabo girl is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because every time he's like, ugh, Dabo girl. And then it's like, no, wait, like she's studying to be an entomologist. I'm being a jackass. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Dabo girls don't, they're not strippers. Yeah. You know, they're not prostitutes. They, yeah. They're, they just, Spin the Dabo thing. Yeah, they they look very scantily. They're very scantily clad, but they they're like, they're yeah. she's a waitress. Yeah, yeah. Also, my favorite thing. You said Chief O'Brien told you everything. No, I didn't. 
<laughs> oh just yeah like, that's so funny i'm just like cisco and like the like it's like the exact opposite dad of dad mode of like oh no no, 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 no this is going too fast no <laughs> uh and it's is that it's that great trope where like um you know character a says you know Character A character says to character B, you know, oh, I had to, I had to talk to you about, you know, something character C said about you. Yeah. Um, and character B is like, ah, oh, shit, and comes clean about something that they told character C that was entirely different. Yeah. It's great. I love the trope. This was such a, this was a more fun episode, but also yeah. not as like oddball. Like, I think the episodes that I get the most fun out of like, dunking on and like making yucks for are the ones that are like a mixed bag mm -hmm. this one mm -hmm. just had some really good moments the voles though the vol oh god yes oh, <laughs> oh I brian's love war Dude, against the voles the voles are an absolute <laughs> the sometimes on these shows <laughs> this like, is not the last time we see them either <laughs> that's amazing to know thank you for that uh sometimes on on these shows like B5 has some props that, I mean, we've talked about the like science store at the mall grade props that B5 often has. <laughs> and DS9 has had a couple of those, like the gambling device. But this thing looks like somebody That's the did a class, like a, like a Jim Henson elective. And, and this was their final project. The, the, my description of it is that they were rejects in the dark crystal props department. My, yes. Very accurate. My favorite part of this is that they like literally are at a point, like they, they literally have a point where it's like they're moving across the thing and it literally looks like somebody is just off camera shuffling them. <laughs> yes. It's incredible. Uh, I love the vols. And legitimately the scene where O'Brien turns on the the sonic weapon and Cork just like just like complete like just slides out of the frame it's just incredible just the Cork has had a good run of episodes here where he is not central to any of these plots but he is just corking it up in the background all over the place yeah yeah we're we're really into like prime DS9 here where yeah. like of this batch of three, like, I mean, playing God is a favorite of mine. The other two are not. But, like, these are all pretty fun okay. in, like, you know, you know, one way or another. Like, this is what I remember Star Trek being when I was watching it as a kid, where you have, there's a plot that's kind of moving forward a little bit. Because I remember DS9, and I remember that about DS9, that it had a little bit of plot moving forward. Yeah. There were character arcs yeah. moving forward. But every... Every week you got an episode where these great character moments and there was sure there was plot going on and sometimes the plot was good and sometimes it was bad, but you really tuned in for these characters that you had fallen in love with. Yeah. That, that And these actors that really dialed in these specific characters. And I think we've really hit that with these, you know, these episodes are really getting to the point where these, these characters have really become who they, who they're turning into and they're mm -hmm. getting really comfortable there. And that's, that's a fun place for a show to be. And I'm looking for it. And I know that DS9 gets more, less episodic, and it gets a little more structural with its plot. But I'm enjoying this yeah. section, too. Yeah. Yeah. Even even in the section of, like, you know, one space wedgie and two planets of the bad vibes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, any closing thoughts for this, or I'm, I'm wrapping it up because we are hitting the 90 minute mark of this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I don't have anything else. Um, other than that, Cisco continues to be just a fucking great dad. One, I have one last thing, which is that this is the first time we see the Klingon restaurant. Um, no, it's actually the second time. Really? Really? It's seen in Melora, which we haven't done yet. Oh, oh right. Right. We'll go back to that episode. But the, but yeah, no, Klingon, Klingon serenaded chef is uh, boyfriend material. Uh, yep. <laughs> I, I love the Klingon restaurant. Didn't we have a previous episode where there was like a Klingon like pop-up restaurant and you mentioned that this was not the final version of what the Klingon restaurant Maybe. would be? I, I, Maybe. I can't remember. All right. So next time. Oh my gosh. I, 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 I'm, I'm looking at the episode that we've got next time. We are going to be covering episodes 18 and 19 of season two. Profit and Loss and Blood Oath. Those are very intimidating slash like promising episode I, names. I, these are these are I think we're in for a good time. If we made like a, if we ranked the entire series, both of these episodes would probably be in the top 30. Yep. All right. Until next time, just, just keep circling. Keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. Yeah. Keep just circling. keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. Just keep circling. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.